Episode 1 of All Those Things Revealed. 1840. Shannon's Cottage, Clonlara, Ireland. Michal is seated across from me. I can tell that he is nervous. He does not look directly at me. Occasionally, he steals a glance at my daughter, Maureen. He really is a nice young man, and I am genuinely pleased with the match, but I don't intend to tell him this too soon. His black hair and dark eyes are luminous with his pale complexion. Maureen's reddish-brown hair and gray-blue eyes are soft and her skin is golden from the summer months. The contrast between the two is striking. Maureen knows me better than most daughters know their mothers. I can tell that she is amused at the effect I am having on her intended, but she is careful to suppress her amusement. My only concern with this match is that they are both so young. How do you intend to support my daughter? I pointedly ask. I will work hard, he says, although he seems to be speaking to his neatly folded hands. I can barely hear him. Maureen gives me a faint smile, but I am relentless. You are only seventeen. So is my daughter. Do you think that either of you are old enough to make such a momentous decision? He looks directly at me and replies, Men younger than me have entered seminaries. If they are not too young to make such a momentous decision, then Maureen and I are not too young to marry. I am taken aback, but I recover quickly. I wonder how much he knows. Yes, but they are answering a calling, a fated calling, I reply. He does not falter for a moment. That is true. Their calling is fated. By answering a call, a priest accepts his fate, he replies. He is looking at his hands again. Perhaps you two are fated to be together. It is difficult to know for certain, since you are only seventeen. I suppose that is also the case for a young man answering a call to be a priest. My mother told me once that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. I believe that this is how fate works. Once your fate is revealed to you, you accept your fate. But one's fate seems a mystery, even when it is revealed, I reply. He looks me in the eye and holds my gaze for a moment before speaking. Perhaps that is because, for some, fate is determined by providence. For others, fate is simply determined by actions. Subsequently, fate can seem certain or uncertain, he says, without taking his eyes off of me. Do you agree? Once again, I wonder how much he knows. I am afraid that you are confusing fate with consequences, I reply. He smiles and steals a quick glance at Maureen before answering me. I believe that others have. If fate is not providential, it is not fate, but simply the consequences of another's actions. Not all that is predetermined is predestined, because the former is only established while the latter is purposed, even divinely purposed. One is only an effect while the other is a cause, he replies in a calm and steady voice, before once again looking directly at me and meeting my gaze. Do you agree, Mrs. Maloney? Now I am clearly taken aback. Maureen looks at me uneasily. Ma? I look away from her questioning glance. Yes, Michal, the consequences of another's actions 
can determine the fate or course of someone or even an entire family for generations. But those original determining actions may have been predestined. They may have been things revealed. Who can say? I suppose the answer is one of those secret things, I answer in a fading voice. Now Maureen and Michal are both staring at me. Although I don't know how much he knows, I am certain that he knows more than my daughter. He has weighed his words carefully, and he does not seem surprised at my responses. Maureen is both quiet and uneasy. I reach for her hand and give it a quick squeeze. She smiles, but it is a fragile smile. I lean back in my chair, and after closing my eyes for a moment, I look at each of them in turn. Listen to me, I say. <sighs> I sigh and take a deep breath, regaining my composure before I continue. I want to tell the two of you a story of how the fates of many families were sealed for generations. Listen to my story and then decide if their fates were sealed by the consequences of determining actions, or were their fates sealed by determining actions that were themselves destined? Were their fates truly fates? I will tell the story as it was told to me by my mother. And so I begin. Many centuries ago, there was a king who reigned in a northern region of our island. One day, a poorly dressed man begged for an audience with this king. This humble man brought with him a message. He claimed that he had been instructed by his king, an even greater king, to share this message. The Irish king asked about this greater king, and the humble messenger told him that this king was the king of all the heavens, the greatest of all kings. If he would bow to this greatest of all kings, his rewards would be endless and eternal. The Irish king was at first skeptical, but eventually agreed to bow to the king of all the heavens. When he did, he insisted that his subjects do so too. He asked the humble man to build a temple to this greatest of kings. The humble man did as he was told and soon began to instruct others. In time, the humble man moved on to another kingdom on our island, where he met another king. This king also agreed to bow down to the king of all the heavens. Once again, a temple was built, and men were instructed. Soon the humble priest had moved on to yet another kingdom. The new devotees that were instructed at each new house of worship began to follow the path of the humble man. These wandering evangelists built new houses of worship throughout Ireland. Grateful Irish kings frequently gifted lands to the evangelists who founded their temples. Such a gift was always hereditary, and these evangelists became the progenitors of clans that would become religious royalty. People believed that if the best kings were descended from kings, then the best men of God were descended from men of God. They were called the Chaldei, the companions of God. Were the Chaldei fated to evangelize? Did they receive a calling that was their destiny, a calling to take up the cross and preach the Gospels? If so, 
then Ireland was fated to be Christian. If not, then our Christianity is simply a consequence, and the Caladay families were bound to their lands and duties because of the determining actions of their ancestors, I say. Maureen has regained her composure throughout my story. She looks at me and then her intended. Michal glances down at his hands again without his previous confidence. Ma, this is a matter of faith. The most faithful souls of Ireland would believe that our people were fated to be Christian, and the least faithful would believe that our faith was decided by chance. They would claim that these evangelists could have easily failed, Maureen replies. Michal glances at me knowingly. He knows that his intended is mistaken. He quickly returns his gaze to his folded hands. He does not say a word. No, Maureen, that is not true. Many of our most faithful eventually rejected the Calidae, their legacy, and their traditions. This began long ago, I say. Why? Maureen asked thoughtfully. Hereditary clergy was not the only Calidae tradition that differed from the rest of Christendom. Ireland's early Christians formed several of their own rituals. These rituals became known collectively as the Celtic Rite, I say. Were Ireland's early Christians Roman Catholic, she asks. Yes, the rituals of the Celtic Rite differed very little from those that were the norm in Rome. The Celtic Rite developed in Ireland as the Latin Rite developed in Rome. Native traditions were joined with worship. The rituals unique to each people were intrinsic to their faith, for believers did not cease to be themselves when they accepted our Lord. The joining of these traditions into Christianity was part of the process of a people accepting Christianity. Despite the differences, a Celtic Rite Mass adhered to the sacraments and requirements of Rome, I reply. The Celtic Rite was not the only such rite. There were other separate rites in different parts of Europe, Michal says. I give him an approving glance. I cannot help but do so. I am impressed that he knows these details. His mother has taught him well. If he will listen to his mother, he will probably listen to my daughter. Michal is correct. The largest of these rites, the Eastern Rite, severed their ties with Rome. When they did, the remaining rites were considered a threat. If the Eastern Rite could cease to be in communion with Rome, then any of the other rites could follow suit. Rome was determined to prevent this. The actions taken by Rome changed Ireland forever. Our people were punished by Mother Church for the sins of another, I conclude. Maureen glances from Michal to me before impatiently asking, How are they punished? She reddens immediately. Michal simply smiles at her before lowering his head again. Centuries ago, the English arrived at our shores. They arrived speaking French and calling themselves Normans. A pope had given these Normans his blessing because he wanted to destroy the Celtic Rite. Which pope? she interrupts. His name was Adrian IV. He is the only Englishman to ever sit on the throne of St. Peter. Our people often say, we have had only one English Pope, and thank the good Lord, we have had only one English Pope. 
Michal and Maureen both smile. Maureen seems to relax. I continue. He died before the Normans could muster an army or an excuse to invade our land, but his successor, Alexander III, feared the Celtic Rite as much as his predecessor. He even went so far as to excommunicate the whole of Scotland when their king, William I, insisted that his personal Caladay chaplain replace the Bishop of St. Andrews. It was no great surprise that he gave his blessing for the Normans to invade Ireland. They arrived in 1169. Within three years, a synod was held, presided over by King Henry II of England himself to stamp out the Celtic Rite. At least that is how it was told to me, I say. I pause, expecting questions, but they both remain silent. They stare at me intently, and I know they wish for me to continue. A century earlier, our mother church had begun to condemn in earnest any priest who did not practice celibacy, and the wives of priests were sold into slavery, I continue. With this detail, Maureen gasped. Mother church's message was clear. A priest was holier if he practiced celibacy, because a priest was holier if he avoided women. Women were considered a source of sin and shame. This is why the wives of priests had to be sold into slavery. They had to be punished for bringing sin and humiliated for bringing shame. The Calidae refused to obey. The Normans took their lands and forced their women into convents, I add. And the Calidae were no more? Maureen whispers. No, the Normans did not conquer all of Ireland, I reply. I pause again. I know that once I continue, I will have to speak of my own secret things, secrets that I have kept hidden away for years. I will have to speak of my journey through this vast wilderness. All that I most desire to keep to myself, I will have to reveal. I must speak of the things my eyes have seen things that have not faded from my heart and never will. I know the brilliance of those things is not enough. I must bear my soul. I take a deep breath and continue. <sighs> Leinster was conquered. Leinster is my home. I don't believe that I have ever told you this, Maureen, I say. No, I thought you had always lived here in Clonlara, she replies. Once again, she looks uncertain. That is my fault. I have kept much to myself, I say. I will tell you my story. It is time I did so. Long ago, a beautiful but foolish goddess drank from a forbidden well. As punishment, the gods made the well burst forth. She was carried out to sea. Unable to overcome the wrath of the gods or the force of the water, she tragically drowned. As her life was taken, the waters receded and returned to the land forming a river which was named for her, Shannon. I am from Athlone in County Westmeath. Shannon's River, the Shannon River, divides the town of Athlone. Shannon's sacrifice was great, but so is our blessing, for the Shannon is the greatest of Ireland's rivers. Sadly, the more you rely on this blessing, the more you too must sacrifice. The goddess's river, 
has allowed Athlone to flourish and prosper, but her people will tell you the grim fact that the goddess's curse is never far away. Shannon, like Eve, was punished for taking what had been forbidden, and now we prosper from her sin. At times, we too must be punished, for there are only two types of years in Athlone, flood years and years when the Shannon has threatened to flood. When we were punished, there were only two options. We could leave or we could stay. Most would heed the old adage that better is the evil known than the good which is yet to be known. They, like Eve, believed that crafty serpent who said, you surely will not die, and they chose to stay. Those that stayed would seek out my father. My father, mother, and I lived in a three-room cottage near Galway Road. It was in a part of Athlone known as Gallows Hill. Many believed that the area was haunted. Its name betrayed its terrible history. So my father was not able to convince many townspeople to move to our part of town, despite the fact that it was seldom flooded. Our cottage was fairly typical in its layout, but it was larger than most cottages. It had a large main room and two smaller rooms that flanked the main room. We also had a loft. The ladder to the loft was outside of my room. Our main room had a very large hearth where Mother did all of her cooking. Her kettles, pots, and pans were all hanging at the hearth. It was a common sight to see Mother cooking or warming herself at our hearth. Mother and Father's room was on the other side of the hearth, so it was usually warmer than mine. My room was further from the hearth and smaller, but I didn't mind because I had my own room. I was the envy of my friends since most of my friends slept with their siblings in a loft or even in their parents' beds. Our cottage was the only place my father had ever built entirely. Despite this, he enjoyed a better reputation as a master builder than anyone else in Athlone or all of County Westmeath or even in any and all of the neighboring counties. In 1822, when I was 15, my mother explained to me how this could be. I was seated at our table as my mother prepared my father's lunch. When she finished, it would be my responsibility to carry his pack up to him so that he would not have to walk home to eat his lunch. I watched her work, her hands neatly and deftly preparing his bread. She was very petite, her hair was a reddish brown, and her face was still quite young. Her eyes were the same blue-gray as my own. I knew that I must be considered plain next to my beautiful mother. Once I finish, you'll take these to your father, mother said. Yes, ma. He doesn't have time to come home, she added. Mother was working more feverishly. I could tell that she was frustrated. I lowered my head. Yes, ma. I had not complained of my father's frequent absences. I knew that what she was about to say was for her own benefit, not mine. Mother sighed and stopped working for a moment so that she could wipe her forehead. Our cottage was warm. Last year was dreadful, and so far this year has not been much better. That is why we have seen so little of him, she said. I gave mother a faint smile. Everybody wants Dov because he is the best at what he does, I said. She smiled too. Is that what he's told you? She asked. Yes, every chance he gets, I quipped. 
Mother stopped and after a moment of trying to suppress a laugh, burst out laughing before chiding me. That is the kind of cheeky remark your father would make. I smiled. I was an only child and my parents indulged me. I knew that I had not upset mother. It is true, mother said wistfully. He is the best. He has been working since he was a child. A stonemason taught him how to build with stone, and then a master builder taught him everything else. He could build a castle, a cottage, or even a lowliest of cabins, the ones made of little more than mud, stones, and thatching. But he chose to restore homes rather than build new ones. Our Shannon makes certain that he will never be short of work. She finished wrapping his sandwiches and then looked at me intently. He is as pleased to work for the poorest peasant as he is the grandest lord. He is a kind man, she added. I simply nodded. I knew that father was considered a kind man, but how do you measure kindness? It is not to be measured out in acts of kindness. It is to be measured by the amount of pleasure and joy one has when performing these acts of kindness. That is how you measure one's worth when determining whether or not one is kind. My father was a kind man, but he certainly did not always take pleasure in his acts of kindness. He took more pleasure in the fact that people thought so highly of him and his abilities. I knew this at my tender age. I knew this because of what my mother had often said to me when she was desperate to confide in someone. Your father enjoys such a reputation. He receives requests from all over Ireland begging him to come and help restore flooded homes and buildings, but he never takes a job that will keep him away from us for more than a few weeks, she added. I knew this was true. Father didn't like to be away from us for too long. I knew that he missed mother terribly if they were apart for even one week. She missed him too. It was during these times when she was the most vulnerable that she would confide in me. Mother handed me the wrapped sandwiches. She looked away wistfully and said, Years ago, he was called away for a few weeks to the village of Glasson. I know where that is. It's not far from here, I interrupted. Yes, Glasson is nearby. My family worked for the local landlord. Your father made certain to befriend my father. Once he gained my father's trust, he made his intentions clear. We were married only one month after our first meeting. He swears that he knew as soon as he saw me that he would have to marry me. I wasn't convinced as quickly, but I soon found him charming and agreed to marry him. I put the sandwiches in my sack and looked at mother imploringly. What did he say or do to convince you? I knew that I shouldn't be so bold, but I was more curious than I was cautious. Mother smiled and simply replied, he told me a story. I groaned. Ugh. Ma, will you tell me the story when I return? I asked. She smiled coyly and replied, I may, I may not. Now run along before your father thinks that we have forsaken him and left him to starve. I knew that she might have a good story. She also might be using this as a ploy, so I would hurry to my father and then hurry home. I was not about to take the chance of missing out on one of her stories. I considered the entire town of Athlone to be an extension of my family's cottage. I had walked down every street and alley because Athlone was neither large nor small. I was a familiar sight. I believed that I would never leave Athlone. 
I believed that I would never even want to leave. I made my way to Pudding Lane, which some of the townsfolk called Queen Street, and headed towards the old shambles. The shambles was the area near our town's market square where all of the butchers could be found. The area was teeming with cats. It was in this area that my father found an abandoned kitten, which had since grown to be our fat, lazy house cat, Cuckoo. I then made my way onto Connaught Street and headed towards the old bridge. I crossed it quickly and passed Dulcel Place. As soon as I made it to Church Street, I hurried to Preacher's Lane. It was named for the Methodists, who were known for their fiery preaching. The entire area around Church Street was oddly named Little Hell by the older townsfolk. Some said this was due to old burial grounds, and others said that Protestant missionaries had given the area its name because it remained heavily Roman Catholic, even after those missionaries built their churches. Regardless of the reason, it was an odd name for an area that was now known for its many churches. One of those churches had sustained some damage due to the terrible weather we had endured. A storm had damaged the roof, and then the flooding had done even more extensive damage. My father was working with a small group of men painstakingly repairing the small church so that it could once again open its doors to worshippers. One of my father's men saw me before my father did. It was our neighbor, Padraig Plunkett. He shouted to my father as soon as he saw me, Jeffrey, one of your women folk has brought you something. My father looked up and smiled broadly. Did you bring your old dad a pack up? He shouted as he began walking towards me. Everyone present heard him because his voice was like his person, warm and robust. Yes, da, I replied, reddening. Good day, Mr. Plunkett, I added quickly. Mr. Plunkett smiled. How are you, Costanza? He asked. Very well, thank you, Mr. Plunkett, I replied. All grown up. How old are you now, Costanza? He asked. I am fifteen, Mr. Plunkett, I replied, still red-faced. My father reached me and added, She looks older. She is already taller than her ma. Soon she will be as tall as I am. I would never be as tall as father. He was taller than most of the men in Athlone. His hair and eyes were dark. His skin was bronzed and speckled with sunspots from his years spent working out of doors. Then she'll have to help us. We can always use another set of hands, Mr. Plunkett said. This caused quite a bit of good-natured laughter while my father shook his head while grinning and repeatedly saying, No, no. The youngest of his workmen, who was still working, shouted to my father, Mr. Delamar, I believe she is already taller than me. My father didn't miss a beat and quickly replied, She was taller than you two years ago. This brought a fresh round of laughter and my face reddened again. The young workman, who was indeed not very tall at all, grinned at me. He didn't seem to mind the laughter. I immediately liked him. I gave my father his lunch. My wife always packs too much. If anyone didn't bring a lunch, I'm happy to share mine. He hollered over his back without looking at anyone in particular. Mr. Plunkett, who had walked over to an area where he kept his pack, raised a bag in the air and shouted, And I... The good-natured young man put down his hammer and began to walk towards my father. 
I did not want to embarrass him, so I returned my gaze to my father. Da, I promised Ma I would go directly home, I said. Ah, she worries too much. Go on then, go on, he replied. He smiled at me again. I hurried away with several shouts behind me. Good day, Miss Delamar, followed by Mr. Plunkett's booming voice. Please give my regards to your Ma Costanza. Each time I turned around and nodded my head or waved my hand, I could see that my father was now beaming. This episode of All Those Things Revealed is based on a novel of the same name, available in print and Kindle formats at Amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the Irish Stories podcast.